Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of the fundamental attribution error, our tendency to overestimate dispositional causes of behavior, like innate character traits and attitudes you have, and to underestimate the role of situational influences on how people act. Yeah, and we kicked off the first episode by talking about uh, the classic sci-fi horror film, Alien. Yeah. And, uh, you know, figuring out the the characters and the motivations and the actions of, of Ripley and Dallas uh, in the uh, early goings of that film. Yeah, specifically in the scene where uh, Dallas gets back with, uh, you know, John Hurt has a an alien facehugger stuck mm-hmm. to his face. And he says, let us in the ship. And Ripley says, no, I can't do that. Unfortunately, she gets ignored, overridden. They come inside anyway. And we discussed what caused them to make the decisions they make. Now, that was in the context of uh, emphasizing the distinction between situational explanations and dispositional explanations. You could say Ripley was trying to obey quarantine orders because she's orderly and logical and calm under pressure. Or you could say that she was doing it because maybe the cabin was cold and she was uncomfortable or because she was nervous because of the strange situation they were in. And of course, in a way, both those things can be true. Like people actions are always an outgrowth of both who they are as a person and what they bring to the table, but also of the situation they're in and the unique circumstances they face. And the the issue with fundamental attribution error is just that we tend to overestimate the role of the former and underestimate the role of the latter. Yeah, we want to we want to explain everything, uh, you know, based on a, like a simplistic uh, Dungeons and Dragons alignment table that always explains their behavior. I guess a lot of people aren't familiar with Dungeons and Dragons. Robert, can you briefly explain what alignments are in D anD D? Okay, so it's almost impossible that you that you haven't seen this, and by you, I mean everybody listening, like memified. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you've seen it memified, but there will be this this grid, right? Of um, of what nine squares mm-hmm. uh, showing where you are on uh, on a, a grid of of lawful, neutral, and um, and chaotic tendencies, mm-hmm. as well as on good, neutral, uh, evil tendencies. So these these grids are these are the two axes, and they cross reference. Right. So you can be chaotic good or chaotic neutral or chaotic evil. You can be lawful good, lawful evil, th- that kind of thing. Right. And it's a, you know it's a, a it's it's a guide in Dungeons and Dragons to determine how players are going to role play their characters mm-hmm. and how uh, they are going to interact with monsters and non-player characters and how a dungeon master is going to incorporate those beings as well uh, and how and, uh, and and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think the, the the memification of it really shows sort of the the, the simple nature of it uh, mm-hmm. at times. You know where it's like, okay, we're gonna I'm gonna take nine characters from this television series I like or from yeah. politics or from what have you. And put them on that chart. Yeah, put them on that chart and just boil them down to um, to, to this is one statement of their identity. But one of the funny things is I think the more realistic and complex the characters in a story are, the harder it is to fit them into a grid evenly, right? Yeah. Because the more realistic people are, the more their, their behavior varies, the less consistent they are in how their ethics are applied. Because, in fact, 
in reality, people's behavior is highly situational. You know, they act one – their lawful good in one scenario and then depending on a few, you know, the temperature of the room and who's there and what they're feeling in the moment, they are lawful evil or chaotic evil in a different scenario. Yeah. You know, you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. You're, you're so concerned about um, the alignment of the Minotaur and we don't think about what the labyrinth is doing to the Minotaur. <laughs> so – now, I think it's funny that you bring up uh, alignments with respect to alien and aliens because I think people don't often do this. But I've thought about it before and I have a hypothesis. It is that Ellen Ripley changes alignment between alien and aliens. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. In alien, she, I would say, is lawful neutral. She's not especially selfless or helpful to other people, but she does obey the rules and do what she's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. In Aliens, a very different ethic emerges. In Aliens, she's more rebellious and rule-breaking, but in the spirit of being good and helpful to others. I'd say in Aliens, she is chaotic good. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, she's more the um, – she's, the, 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 she's a Beowulf figure in Aliens, quite literally. <laughs> Like she, she goes uh, uh, back in, you know, she dives down and does battle with the monster's mother. But I love this transition. I mean, some people might say, well, that's inconsistent. You know, she acts one way in the first movie and she's kind of a different character in the second movie. That's what people are like. Mm-hmm. You know, circumstances in their lives change and it changes the way you behave. This is, in fact, the, the difference between alien and aliens is a great illustration of the failure of FAE-type thinking when you start trying to box people in based on limited data points about their behavior in the past. Absolutely. Now, I guess we'll leave, we'll leave uh, uh, the listeners to decide uh, what her alignment would be then in Alien 3 and in Alien Resurrection. Alien Resurrection. Oh, what, what is the alignment of a pile of horse manure? Oh, oh I think there are beautiful things about Alien Resurrection. No, <laughs> well, we can fight about this someday. All right. Well, uh, well let's, let's move on from, uh, from the, the, the Alien universe now and uh, jump back into our discussion of FAE. So we've been talking about the fundamental attribution error, the, the tendency we have to more often than not explain other people's behavior through uh, through dispositional explanations, things about them as a person, and to underestimate the role of situational constraints and external factors dictating their behavior. Now, one thing I was wondering when I was reading about this is – how much could this vary between different uh, different types of cultures and mm-hmm. backgrounds and how much is this just a fundamental part of every human brain? And it looks like there is some role that culture plays in how strong the FAE is, right? Yeah, and, and specifically um – uh, what differences you're going to see between West and East, mm-hmm. uh, between uh, American culture and, uh, and, and say, Chinese culture or Korean culture or Japanese culture, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a little American exceptionalism, if you want to <laughs> call it that, uh, in regards to our tendency to engage uh, FAE. Let me guess. We're doing worse. Um, yeah, we're we're worse. That that's the the basic uh, uh, take home. But uh, but we're going to get into the details here. This is a uh, this comes from a really cool paper um, titled "Cultural Cultural and Causal Cognition from Current Directions in Psychological Science" from the year two thousand. And this is from uh, Nisbet and Noren Zion, who we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. So uh, basically, here, here's the idea. So for a while, social psychologists assumed that the way we make 
causal judgments uh, is, is universal, that it's the same across all cultures. And uh, this, of course, is always one of the potential problems uh, for a given study or a hypothesis, especially as it relates to uh, uh, the inner workings of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, does, does this uh, view, does it speak to all populations or is it based on a narrow selection that doesn't account for differences in culture, culture socioeconomic level, gender, et cetera? I mean, the classic example of this is when you have a small study that is using only college students. Like East Coast college students in the United States and right. extrapolating from that to something about the way brains work in Homo sapiens. Exactly. You know, maybe not everybody's brain is the same as what's uh, prevalent among that group. Right. So uh, uh, basically this paper speaks to that, like looks at the the cultural differences in FA to first to see if there there is, you know, there there are differences. Uh, and then also to talk about why that could be. Mm -hmm. And so um, Norenzion and Nesbitt, uh, they point out that subsequent studies do seem to reveal that FAE is harder to demonstrate in Asian populations. And this was like multiple studies, Yeah, multiple right? studies. So just a taste here of them. Uh, a 1984 study from Miller showed that Hindu Indians lean toward a situational explanation for ordinary life events. Mm -hmm. Uh, a 1994 study from Morris and Ping found that Chinese newspapers and Chinese students living in America were more likely to explain murders by both Chinese and American perpetrators in situational and societal terms, while American newspapers and American students tended to focus on the perpetrators' presumed dispositions. Yeah, their internal traits. Right. And then uh, a 1999 repetition of the Jones and Harris experiment from 67 uh, on Korean subjects found that Koreans in the study tended to believe that the individual held the views expressed in their essay. Okay. But flipped uh, when they were required to write an essay themselves. Okay. Uh, and did so, you know, more readily than, uh, than the Americans. Also in 1994, Morris and Ping, they showed a, a cartoon of a fish to American and Chinese test subjects. And the Chinese subjects attributed its behavior to external and group factors, while Americans favored internal factors. Um, another study found the same thing with, quote, uh, schematically drawn ambiguous physical events, such as a round object dropping through a surface and returning to the surface. Okay. <laughs> so in that last example, I think that's, that's really essential here is because we're not even talking about human behavior or, uh, uh, you know, the anthropomorphized behavior of a cartoon fish, but we're talking about the physical world itself. We're talking the, about the role uh, that uh, environment has on objects. Uh, Americans focused on the properties of the ball, while the Chinese test subjects focused on the holistic reality in which the ball existed. Oh, well, that almost makes me think of Aristotle. Like, you know, when Aristotle was trying to explain physics, he would constantly make appeals to, like, the nature of a thing determines mm -hmm. how it moves and what happens to it. Like, that, uh, you know, like a rock falls because it has the characteristic of gravity. Yeah, and that that is a huge part of what we're going to talk about here and, and part of the, the reasoning that they suspect. So the authors point out that it's not a case of Asian populations not using FAE. So they do use it to some extent. What's the exception then? Well, it's basically if there's not enough evidence to support a societal or situational explanation, then they'll fall back on FAE reasoning as well. Okay. I mean, basically, you know, it comes down to how are you going to make judgments about, uh, about the world around you? You know, when, where, what are you going to give more weight to? And they're saying they're going to give more weight to situational um, 
and environmental, societal, uh, but they're also going to fall back on uh, on nature as well. Well, the, so they'll use situational reasoning when they have some kind of foothold there, when there's some piece of information they can draw from, right? Right. So that it, that makes it look kind of like – it's like the FAE might be sort of like a baseline human tendency – but that you can be culturally conditioned to remember more often to take into account circumstantial information when you have access to it. I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. They didn't really talk so much about what could be the baseline. Like so much of this paper focuses on this is what we see in the Western model and this is in the Eastern. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they make an argument for aspects of those cultures, especially the, the, the key influential cultures, namely Greek culture in the West and Chinese culture in the East. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't really get into it like what would a, would a non-Chinese, non-Western civilization – like you get into the, the, the mm -hmm. whole discussion of where a culture and civilization, how it arises and how do you – how would you even strip away the tendency to lean one way or the other? Yeah. Well, I was just referring to the fact that you mentioned about uh, even – the Eastern test subjects falling back on FAE yeah. when they didn't have any kind of circumstances that they knew about to appeal to. Right. It would seem to be that both are natural tools in the toolbox. Uh -huh. But then culture uh, would have uh, an influence on which one uh, is the, the more dominant measurement system. Okay. So basically the authors are talking about cultural differences in causal cognition here. And they, they state that one of the key factors really comes down to the differences in intellectual histories in East Asia and in Europe from about the 6th century BCE onward. Hmm. Uh, in this, the authors argue we have to consider the differences in the key foundational intellectual cultures at play here, Greek culture and Chinese culture. Okay. So these are, you know, the, uh, basically like these are just very foundational um, uh, uh, cultural systems that end up influencing uh, everything else. Yeah, produced early intellectual texts that have been ceaselessly referred back to within the region. Right. Uh, so you mentioned Aristotle earlier, uh, mm -hmm. and they point out that the Greeks focused on analytics, categorizing objects based on their attributes, and this was used to explain uh, behavior. Yeah, I mean, th again, this is, Aristotle was constantly trying to appeal to the nature of a thing to explain why the thing did what it did. Right. And then meanwhile, the Chinese focused on a holistic view that focused more on the field in which the object existed and interacted. That's interesting. Now, why would this be the case? Well, the authors speculate that China's holistic leanings might stem from an earlier shift to intensive farming, leading to a more cooperative, uh, collectivist culture. Hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Greek geography prohibits extensive farming operations. Instead, there was a focus on domesticated animals, on fishing, uh, and on trade, and this led to a highly individualistic culture. I don't know if I'm ready to jump on board with that as the reading of the, these causes in history, but I, I don't know if I'd ever heard it put that way. That is an interesting take. Yeah. Uh, and of course, if, if these factors are in place, we have to consider to consider just how much of those keystone cultures and the cultures that grew out of them are based in this line of thinking. Hmm. Um, I mentioned that I was going to bring this around to Dungeons and Dragons earlier. Oh yeah, uh, so I knew you would, Robert. <laughs> in reading this paper and in just discussing FA in general, um, I, I think back to um, the monster manuals of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Um, you know, these are the, the books that are full of uh, uh, page after page of monster uh, and stats about their abilities and some information on their you know, their background, how they work, and how you how you basically have the uh, players in a game fight it. They're just wickedly Aristotelian. Yeah, and you know they basically function 
like bestiaries from the classic tradition, right? Yeah. Uh, from the classic Western tradition. Here is a list of things, and here are their attributes. Uh, now, but while a good monster manual, you know, will discuss a little bit about the creature's nature, natural habitat, and how it functions within that habitat, I think it's safe to say that there is a strong FAE leaning here. Absolutely, yeah. Because the key, I mean, they have alignments. Yeah, yeah, the alignment is the key. Like, yeah, there's you know, there's some stats that tell you exactly what it can do. Yeah. But it's that alignment that instant. That's where my eyes often go. Like sometimes, you know, that's the first thing I look at. Like, what is the essential nature of this monster? Is it chaotic good? Is it chaotic evil? Is it neutral? Is it lawful good? Um, and, and that will determine almost everything you need to know about how it is probably going to interact with a character. Yeah, they have a uniform characteristic way in which they behave. And, mm -hmm. you know, the the fact is, in reality, uh, well, I guess in reality there aren't D&D &D monsters. But <laughs> if there were, they would be animals, right? Right. And animals do tend to react to situations in highly ways that are highly dependent on what the situation is that are not always predictable from just fundamental knowledge about the innate character of that individual animal. Well, I mean, there are animals in the monster manual. Yeah. They're, they're in the back, you know, but they're... Okay. Uh, and they tend to be like true neutral, right? Okay. Uh, which, you know, again, it comes down to situation. Like a a, a cornered, starving animal is going to behave differently than a um, than a fully fed uh, animal out in the open. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's just a, the, the part of it. Well, I mean, then again, on the other hand, I mean, obviously, none of what we're talking about today denies that people have certain tendencies. There mm -hmm. are – people do have tendencies. What I think this should redound to is that maybe monsters and characters in D&D, &D, if they have alignments, their alignments should be, I don't know, should apply 60 percent of the time or something yeah. rather than thinking if you do one thing that violates your alignment, now you got to do an alignment check because people just aren't like that. People sort of act out of character based on circumstances all the time. I've seen some material like uh, trying to apply this kind of uh, nuance to say, say uh, creatures like the drow, uh, the, uh, the, the evil um, subterranean elves of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, I think, you know, because there's been, there, there was, you know, a lot of increased action around the drow and creating drow characters that were maybe not evil or not completely evil and were a little more uh, complex. But I've seen some people like discussing like what percentage of the drow population um, are evil and then what percentage uh, <laughs> happens to be good. And I don't know, I guess it gets kind of messy when you have a system that is ultimately based in giving uh, anybody uh, uh, out there like numerical stats and a, uh, a definitive alignment. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess part of the problem with D&D &D is similar to the problem you're encountering in fiction, whereas like, you know, in fiction, a character needs to have characteristic behavior so that you understand the role they play in the story, you know, mm -hmm. for them to just kind of act randomly is not very efficient in terms of storytelling, and it doesn't feel very satisfying to the audience. I'm sure the same is true in a game. All right. And, you know, ultimately, as we've discussed on the show recently, uh, narrative is a lie. And, uh, and so is gaming to a certain extent. So, uh, but, but anyway, you have to go back to our narrative episodes for more um, nuance on, on what we're talking about there. All right, time for a quick break, but we will be right back. And we're back. In discussing this division, though, between East and West, uh, between Greek culture and Chinese culture, the authors point uh, to the differing strengths and weaknesses of Greek and Chinese science and mathematics hmm. as potential evidence here. So I'm going to read just a, um, a segment from their uh, paper. 
Quote, Greek science looked for universal rules to explain events and was concerned with categorizing objects with respect to their essences. Chinese science, some people would say it was a technology only, though a technology vastly superior to that of the Greeks, was more pragmatic and concrete and was not concerned with foundations or universal laws. The difference between the Greek and Chinese orientations is well captured by Aristotle's physics, which explained the behavior of an object without reference to the field in which it occurs. Mm, yeah. Thus, a stone sinks into water because it has the property of gravity, and a piece of wood floats because it has the property of levity. I should have looked ahead. <laughs> in contrast, the principle that events always occur in some context or field of forces was understood early on in China. That's interesting. I, I've never heard it put that way, but uh, th that does kind of make sense based on what I know, that where more Western natural philosophers would have seen, uh, you know, things and bodies – that uh, the, the Eastern thinkers saw a world. Yeah. So the idea here is that much of this division in thinking remains despite the enhanced interconnectedness of the modern world. And uh, the cool thing is that we can actually test for this uh, to a certain extent, uh, or at least we can test for what's known as field dependence via a simple rod and frame test. So I can't remember if we've actually discussed a rod and frame test on the show before. I'm not sure. Well, um, tell me about it. Okay, so basically the situation is you look through a long box-like frame at a rod. Uh, I, I found an image of one of these and I put it in, in our notes, Joe, but it's essentially like looking looking into a, a box, like looking into the top of a box, mm -hmm. and at the bottom there's a rod. And in this particular example, the rod appears to be glowing, like it's a light stick. Uh -huh. And... In this experiment, you can uh, r independently rotate the rod or the frame, uh, often via opposing joysticks on a gaming remote. And the test subject makes adjustments and then declares when the rod is finally vertical. Okay. So you can adjust the, the, the object or subject, and you can also uh, adjust the field or the box in order to get the proper alignment. Hmm. And then whoever's uh, you know, giving the test, they can see, you know, where you're making the most uh, adjustments. Uh, so the extent to which the orientation of the frame influences judgments of the verticality of the rod, uh, that is going to tell us, um, you know, what your field dependence is. Okay. And um, East Asian participants, mostly Chinese, have been shown to be more field dependent than Americans in experiments by Ji, Ping, and Nesbitt. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, a 1999 study from Masuda and Nesbitt highlighted these differences between American and Japanese individuals via exposure to underwater scenes with focal fish. Mm. So that's, you know, the idea that, you know, there are certain fish that would capture your attention. The fish in this case are the rod and the, um, uh, the, the underwater environment is the box, the frame. But the general idea is that... Uh Subjects from uh, Asian cultures are more likely to see things in terms of the environment, to take total environmental information into account. Yeah, and uh, I, I found this really interesting having recently enjoyed a, a lot of snorkeling on a, on a trip, uh, went with my family uh, to Belize. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, these beautiful coral reef environments, rich environment, a lot going on. We'd be out there for an hour or two at, at a time. And I'd have to remind myself at, at times to take it all in holistically mm -hmm. uh, because I'd have a tendency to focus in on key focal fish 
or the search for larger specimens, right? Mm-hmm. I'd be looking around like, ooh, I want really want to see a, a big ray. I, I, uh, I want to see another one of those nurse sharks. I want to see the remarkable larger specimens. And then I would have to stop and realize, but but no, wait, I need to take it all in. Like it's the, the coral reef is this, uh, this, this, this rich environment, you know? It's kind of like, I guess an example of this too might be if you were at an art museum and you're looking at a, a, a mural, uh, say like an enormous, uh, you know, an enormous wall piece, a big triptych or something. Mm-hmm. And you, you might be tempted to, you know, go from this detail to this detail and take each one in, the symbolism of each little detail. And and then you have to remind yourself to back up a little bit and take in the whole painting because it's also speaking on that level as well. Yeah, but it, it can be very hard to turn the spotlight off. Yeah. Especially once you've, yeah, you've either if you have a preference for one style of thinking over the other, mm-hmm. or you are actively engaging in one or the other. Yeah. Um, just a couple of, of, of further notes from the authors on this uh, this piece on Eastern Western differences. They said that language of the test did not impact the results, so that would seem to prevent a purely linguistic argument for um, for FAE. Uh, though, of course, I would imagine languages would also be affected by two and a half millennia under a specific educational culture, right? <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Uh, they point out that most individuals compared in these studies had otherwise similar demographics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, for instance, the, 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 uh, the, te- the tests that had, say, an American student and a Chinese student mm-hmm. or, uh, in America – uh, they would supposedly have very similar demographics otherwise. Okay. And then differences in cognitive abilities were also accounted for. Hmm. Well, this makes me wonder if in general uh, bad first impressions are less of a problem in China. <laughs> you know? I don't know. That would be that would be an interesting um, subject to, to look up. Um, it becomes difficult though, I imagine, because in a lot of this year – when you're talking about, uh, you know, cultural tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are a whole lot of factors that are in play, right? Right. Uh, that may or may not be, um, you know, explained by focusing on FAE. I don't know. Well, yeah. Then again, some of the variations that we see based on the cultures might be different depending on what types of information or tests you're talking about. Right. Like I could wonder uh, – I wonder if maybe some cultural groups uh, would be more likely to – ignore the FAA tendency on like judging attitudes held, you know, like in the essay reading or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, but might still display it in terms of judging how friendly somebody is. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back. Let's jump back in. So we've discussed the, you know, the difficulty for moving out of one mindset into the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a lot of people are probably wondering, like, what can I, what can I do? What are some well, yeah. steps I can take? Especially since it's quite clear that the fundamental attribution error is harmful and causes us to make poor judgments that mm-hmm. do not accurately predict people's behavior. So they're like factually not very helpful. Right. And then also can be like socially harmful, can lead us to prejudice and stereotyping. And yeah, yeah. So it's not just a situation of like, uh, you know, it's, it's it's, it's awful, but it works. No, it doesn't. It's it's it, it's both awful and doesn't really work all that well. So we should we should you know find ways to lean into the other ways of uh, figuring out uh, what's going on. Yeah, and so as we've discussed, the prevalence of FAE doesn't pe- it doesn't mean people never take situational factors into consideration. They obviously do. It's just that on average we consider situation far less than we should, and we chalk things up to disposition far more than we should. And so are there ways to defeat this bias in ourselves and in others to take situation into account more comprehensively and to become more rational. 
Uh, one fix is not perfect, but it's very simple. It's just that FAE, I, I mentioned this earlier, it happens easily and automatically. And it can actually, I think, be fairly readily overcome with cognitive effort. Some biases are just easier than others to think yourself out of. And to a certain extent, this actually appears to be one of them. I was reading about one study about this in a, a textbook called uh, Applied Social Psychology, Understanding and Addressing Social and Practical Problems by Schneider et al. And it was discussing research that showed that in some cases, if you prime people to think about situational explanations, they're more likely to consider them. Okay, that's fairly straightforward, right? If you have students watch a silent film of a woman having a conversation displaying nervous behaviors like biting her nails or twirling her hair or something, uh, they found that if you prime subjects by telling them that she's discussing a sensitive or anxious topic um, versus telling the, the people watching the video that she's discussing a relaxing topic, uh, the students who saw her acting anxious while discussing a relaxing topic were more likely to attribute anxiety to her as a character trait. Whereas the ones who thought she was discussing an anxious topic were more likely to take the situation into consideration. So that's fairly straightforward, but it does actually seem to help. Just make people aware of the situation, directly ask them to consider it. Yeah, that's that's interesting, like discussing anxiety here because I feel like this is an example of where like anybody who deals with anxiety, you probably don't think of it as like part of you, right? I mean, you're, or we very often think of it as this thing that I deal with mm -hmm. as opposed to this thing that is a part of my identity, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I feel like it's easy to fall uh, into these traps uh, when considering other people. But like the same person who was like, oh, that person, she's anxious mm -hmm. uh, or that she is an anxious person, they would not uh, view themselves in the same light dealing with, say, anxiety. Of course not. And if you just tell them like she's dealing with an anxious or an anxiety-causing situation, mm -hmm. that mere priming gets people to take that into account and be like, oh, OK, well, the way she's acting is probably reasonable then. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Um now, obviously, so it, it works in that scenario, but obviously this doesn't always eliminate FAE when you ask people to consider the situation because think of the earlier studies, right? Like the, the essays, they would tell people so-and-so has been assigned to this position to advocate and, it's st and still even though they were asked to consider the situation, they didn't consider it as much as they should have. They think, uh, you know, even though Jeffrey's acting this way because he's been assigned to, it's actually also reflective of how he really is as a person. But this one study, I guess, at least does seem to indicate that sometimes priming people to consider situational factors can make a difference. And again, I think this is because it seems we make dispositional attributions. We commit the FAE quickly and automatically. It's something we do with no effort at all. You just automatically jump there and, and assign people character traits based on very limited data. And I think it's just more likely to take some deliberate cognitive effort at correction to take situational factors into consideration. Thus, if you want to reduce your commission of the FAE, try to find out more about the situations of the people you're judging and think deliberately about situational factors and encourage others to do the same. It appears at least in some cases it makes a difference. 
Also consider what we talked about earlier. Remember that people were less likely to make the FAE when they had multiple interactions with the same person and saw how they behaved differently under different situational constraints. So you know more about people, get to know people better. You're probably going to come to see how they're influenced by situational factors and judge them less on the basis of these single data points. Yeah. It, uh, again, this is all, I think, extremely crucial. And I think it does, you know, it, it backs up a lot of the advice that we're given about taking people's like full, uh, you know, th their history and their situation in, into account when, mm -hmm. when ju judging them. Um, because, you know, ultimately anybody you encounter in life, they have not been assigned uh, their personal essay uh, by, uh, you know, somebody carrying out a scientific test. They've been assigned their personal essay uh, by fate, yeah. <laughs> uh, by circumstances. Uh, by luck, yeah. By luck, uh, by, by all these uh, th these factors uh, in our lives, you know, uh, and there but for fortune go you or I. And uh, um, we have to force ourselves to open our eyes to that reality. Uh, just as we would all want other people to be open to that reality in ourselves. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And, and one last thing I would say about recommendations for dealing with this is uh, remember that there's some indication that maybe manipulating perspective helps mm -hmm. people with uh, with getting rid of the FAE tendency. If you if you literally try to look through somebody else's eyes, I mean, I guess you could try to do this just with your imagination, then suddenly you are less likely to ignore situational circumstances that may be causing people to act in a way they wouldn't normally act. Yeah, ultimately, this is what Leatherface was trying to do. He was just trying to <laughs> see through other people's <laughs> eyes, through other people's faces. I don't know, this kind of a stretch. But, uh, but uh, just to bring it back around to films. <laughs> I can't top that, Robert. <laughs> I guess we have to end there. All right. But obviously, this is something we would love to hear from everyone about because everybody has uh, has some experience with FAE. Yeah, you've uh, been judged unfairly on this basis. You've done this to other people. It happens every day. Right. And, uh, and likewise, uh, I'm, I would love to hear from uh, listeners who can uh, provide uh, some of their own insight on the whole Western-Eastern divide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cultural differences there. And then also, hey, we talked about a few different fictions here. We talked about The Alien. We talked about Harry Potter. We talked about Dungeons and Dragons. And ever so briefly, uh, Leatherface. So we would, we'd love to hear uh, from uh, you, the listeners, uh, your, your interpretations of those properties based on FAE as well. In the meantime, if you want to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you will find it all. And if you want to support the show, really the best thing you can do is, you know, spread the word, but also uh, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, wherever you get this podcast. It really helps us out. Uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous aid. Uh, likewise, we mentioned Invention earlier in the recent episodes on photography. If you want to check out Invention, uh, do that. InventionPod.com is the website for that show and you can subscribe rate and review us wherever you get your get your podcast huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producers alex williams and tari harrison if you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.